Nobody's born incredible. People who do incredible things simply took the right steps. This is our journey. This is the hunt for incredible. This is part one of two where we talk to Christian Osgood about how he acquired multifamilies with little to no money and hardly any experience in the beginning. I hope you enjoy it. All right, on today's show, we have a very special guest, uh, Christian Osgood. He's bought 200 units in about three years, starting with no money, all through creative financing. He has a course on how to buy and manage multifamily properties. It's an incredible course, a lot of free content on, on YouTube as well that you can check out and on his Instagram, which we'll, which we'll touch on in the show. Um, and those courses have over 1,000 students. Uh, he runs a property management company and also just recently bought a waterfront resort with $0 out of pocket. Really incredible. Christian, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, $0 is in budget, so I'm sure we're going to touch on that uh, throughout the podcast. But dude, thanks for having me on. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, yeah, of course. So everybody has some context and understands your journey because oftentimes when people think about acquiring commercial real estate or getting involved in the game, they think of such like big dollar signs. And they think, oh, this person must have come from a lot of money or have connections. What is your journey in terms of how you actually got into the game? I'd always wanted to be in real estate and it, like pretty much everyone, I'm like, oh man, I really want to have passive income and own my time. But I had no parameters around what that looked like. So what ended up happening is I had an eight-year sales career wanting to be in real estate, worked for the CoStar Group, so I was around it but not in it, and came to the realization in 2020, to be an investor, you do in fact have to invest in real estate. So I bought a duplex, bought a second duplex, and those two properties cash flowed enough to cover my home mortgage. So I found myself in this interesting place where my real estate was paying for my real estate, which is a good place to be. Real estate's paying for the real estate, I'm pretty happy. Um, and I'm realizing, wait a second, I'm out of money again. I just spent my eight years of stuff on a house and two duplexes. That's where I learned creative finance. The next deal I did was a 38 unit multifamily building, $2 million had been on the market for 13 years and bought it with no money out of pocket. As soon as I learned that skill within a month, I had bought a sixplex and a sevenplex using the same strategy. And that more or less is how we built a 200 unit portfolios. We kept, we found what works and we kept going. So that in a super condensed version is my entire uh, last, last, you know, decade. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And what, what were the terms on that creative financing deal? Creative finance deal, $2 million, uh, 15% down. So a $300,000 down payment. Um, I had zero of that. Uh, so we brought on, uh, in that first deal, we just brought on uh, equity partners to, uh, so we raised 300,000 as a as partners when we got the cash flow up on that property because it was massively underperforming when we bought it um we got the income up and we ended up buying out the partners within the first year nice so bought it with other people's money and then gave them a huge return on their money within the same year and kept the asset and that's how we bought the first deal yeah so many people get discouraged right out the gate if they don't have money and they assume that it can't be done but in reality, if you find the if you find the deal and the numbers work and you can like really nail the terms, then the money will come. I mean, yes. like uh, um, Brandon Turner always says that if you have the right deal, then you're the hot girl at the bar. Like you are offering people an opportunity to invest, and you are solving their investment problems. And if you have that deal, then I mean, the money follows. Well, and I'm going to add to that: if you learn creative finance. You bring the deal and the debt. Like th this one, when you're, when you're talking to your investors, like say you have a conventionally financed deal you want people to invest in. I have an opportunity. 
And here's the price that we have. And this is why I think this is going to be a great deal. Let's go ahead and get the bank loan. And then uh, we need to raise the capital. On creative finance, you don't have all these bank approvals. On this deal, I have an opportunity that I have a plan. And there's a bunch of problems with it. So your pitch is like, hey, look, it, I have property. There's all these things wrong with it. And we're going to fix them. And that's how we're making all of our money. I have the deal and I have 85% of the money already done. The seller is going to pay us 85%. I'm just looking for the last 15. That is a better proposition than I have a deal. It's I have a deal and the debt is done and it's low down comparative to the price. And by the way, we're buying the building for like two thirds of the price that it probably should trade for. Like that is an easy capital deal. Like if, if having a great deal is you're the hot girl at the bar, if you have the deal and 85% of the money, I mean, I don't even know. I don't even have an analogy for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, untouchable. The money will find your deal. The capital raise for those is ludicrously easy. Everyone worries about it, but you keep it in order. Deal, then debt, then equity. And if you come in on the back end and you're like, look, I already did the deal. I already did the debt. It, the pitch is super easy. With the deal being on the market for over a decade, what did you see that others didn't? It was a lot of work. And what Cody and I, my, my business partner, Cody Davis, uh, what we saw in that property was one, their biggest problem, and there was a lot of problems, but their biggest problem was they weren't collecting rent. Like they, 38 units, they were collecting $5,000. It was also in the middle of uh, the pandemic. So all the people who were delinquent were available for the government assistance that was available at that time. Mm. So I was like, we have a problem like right now that is uniquely easy to fix. And we can use that money to renovate the other units and get the project started. So it was a timing thing. It was also seasoned investors did not want that big of a project, even with all the upside. Um, it's a really active hands-on project. People who had the money to take that out didn't want to. And it's not bank financeable because it is in disrepair. Now, we don't only do heavy value add, but that's what this deal was. Right. And so it's not conventionally financeable. So you have to either come on with cash or you have to have a creative solution. We met with them and they wanted $10,000 a month, which is a lot. We made it mostly principal. So we got um, 4% interest on that deal and just added principal to it. So we put it together where it's paying down the loan super fast. And uh, we got through all the renovations out of some government money and then just out of, uh, you know, going around doing some repairs and starting to collect rent. I love that. I have, I have a good friend who he's in oil and gas. So they do exploration and he raised over a hundred million dollars for his company. And I was telling him about one of the deals that we were looking at. And he said, Oh, I love the hair on it. And I was like, what are you talking about? He says, hairy deals are where you make all your money. He said, I love hair. Like anytime I see hair, like that's what we're going for. And you see problems that nobody wants to touch and you can uniquely solve that problem that's what your advantage is. There's another deal that we were looking at where um, it was kind of a strange setup where it was a property, and I, I can't speak too much on it because we're, we're still working through it, but um, it, it's a, a really strange pairing of a commercial asset that the, the seller will only sell with his residential asset as well. The two parcels were right next to each other. And so it made the deal super weird because, I mean, we're not buying residential assets. We're buying commercial assets, but there's a residential asset involved and it has its own unique problems. And that scared away 85% of the competition that are just looking for the standard cookie cutter deals that they're looking for. And they're not willing to compromise because not very many commercial investors are willing to like mess around with residential. It is especially like when it overall, there's some other details that the 
the deal is just weird. And so with that, we were able to negotiate a massive discount because we were willing to solve a problem that other people weren't willing to solve. Mm-hmm. The first time I was on bigger pockets and that was when I, I had a beard that was way too long and audio that didn't work. <laughs> um, but I mean, it was, it was, it was a gnarly beard. I'm not a, I'm not a man who can really grow one. Um, first time I was on bigger pockets, that was the entire episode. We just talked about like, Hey, you make money solving problems. And if you have existing money problems, you need to find problems you can solve that make your current issues seem like nothing. For example, you have a hundred thousand dollar problem. That's a big problem for a lot of people. If you create a new opportunity that is a million dollar problem, all of a sudden your original one seems really small. And that's like a deal like this is a perfect example. Uh, Cody and I made on just this one deal. It's our first deal we did together. Um, we made a million dollars. Like we, we pulled a million dollars cash out of it. Um, we own it and it still has a ton of equity. Like it, it's, we bought it for two, our appraisals for 4.1. Now I don't think it would trade for 4.1. I think it trade for about three, seven, five. Uh, just realistically, but I can show on paper, like, look at, I, I got it valued. You have around $2 million created in two years. That solves a lot of problems. It was hard. There was a chicken infestation on the project of the uh, property. Like literally there's just chickens everywhere. Um, and this is not a town that has a lot of chickens. So it's not <laughs> like, this is a, like, it's not like I, I want a farm. Like this yeah, is yeah, downtown. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We have, uh, there's some bug problems. One of four roofs was bad. That was actually not a huge deal. Um, and then we had some septic drain field problems that were expensive. So, I mean, you had very legitimate issues with the property. And um, this is the deal that took Cody and I from, hey, we have a little bit of real estate to like instantly within a few months. I'm like, oh, cool. We're not like indisputably millionaires. And then we did it on, you know, there's 38 uh, units. We did that over a hundred 75 other multifamily units in the next two years. We did a lot of projects like this. How much of that upside for that specific project would you say was like the value add was from understanding the government subsidies that were tied to COVID that maybe you could right out the gate say like, oh, we just. We didn't have enough money to get through the projects that needed to happen. So it was a, it was a key piece. Um, the actual money itself wasn't that significant. It's just that we got a head start and we were able to lease the rest of the thing and start the project. It, it took some capital. The way we would have done it, though, without the government subsidy is we would have raised more money up front. Like, we got about $100,000 in government money from just, like, back due and future rent from people who needed help or claimed they needed help during COVID. And most of them were, like, fully employed, just not paying rent. But we got all that done. It was about $100,000. The other way to do this project is you raise $400,000 instead of $300,000 and you do the same thing. Right. We ended up refinancing this property twice, actually, during renovations. We pulled uh, 300 out. We bought out some partners. Uh, then we pulled 300 out again after we finished more projects and uh, used that to finish renovating the building. So new windows, siding, appliances. Uh, we took it to the whole next level. Now we have a building that is more or less it, it's stabilized. Now we're working on, okay, what other things can we optimize right. in this building? But I mean, we're basically completed project, $2 million made. There's probably still another million to unlock in that property right. over another couple of years of rent bumps and paving the, uh, the gravel lot. That should pretty much do it. Okay, cool. So then it was like a multi-tiered approach where there was a lot of cleanup. Maybe some of the appliances weren't working, just some fundamental stuff. But once you got that improved, 
and you were able to charge a bit more for those rents. Then you refied, pulled capital back out, and then in, reinvested that to get it to the next level and refied and pulled capital out? Yep. If you have a money problem and you don't have any money, you need to turn the cash problem into a cash flow problem. So we just figured out, okay, how can we put this into tiers where what can we solve with our existing cash flow and what things would require a lump sum and how, where's that money going to come from? You solve everything with money. Um, it's whose money and how is it coming in? And that's, I mean, that's kind of the definition of creative finance. Right. It's like, okay, well, I don't have the conventional, you know, I have 25% down the bank's doing 75. Where's the money coming from to buy? Where's the money coming from to purchase? The rules of the game are you cannot sacrifice cash flow. So you have to maintain long-term cash flowing, fixed rate debt while you do your project. And that is how you answer uh, our golden question. How do you own it? How do you never lose it? You can do those two things. Uh, you make money every time you buy a piece of property. Every close, your income goes up and you're able to do more projects faster. And that's we've we've lived by that and those are principles we don't violate. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to dive into that in the part two. Um, so wrapping up the, this deal, what what was your next step after the deal? Like, were you like, okay, I understand multifamily is the way I want to go. Now I understand how the pieces work. Uh, you mentioned partnering with Cody. What did that process look like? Partnering with Cody. So that was interesting. So I was working at uh, the same brokerage as him at the time. So I left CoStar, became, uh, I was actually working on a call center data product. But um, in that meeting with Cody, first time I met him, he was another broker at the firm. He was the 20, you know, he's only 20. He was the 20 year old in the office who was at 24 multifamily units. And I was like, how did he do that? And then um, around the time I was buying my duplex, he just closed on his 30th unit. So when I met him, he had figured out how to buy real estate with or without money before I did. That was, that was what Cody brought to the table is we started the strategy based on the things that he had learned or was in the process of learning. We started doing deals together and found that I, on most of our deals, I am the operator primarily and Cody finds the deals and uh, especially in our refinances, he does a lot of the money. So we both capital raise, but like Cody gets us through the bank paperwork and the onboarding paperwork. All the in-between is me and now me and my wife, which is a huge piece of my story. The goal I had going into this was retiring my wife. Um, so Cody and I got together because I was investing in the same town, we were working in the same office. I had operational experience throughout multiple companies. Uh, Cody had the ability to buy anything with or without money. And so we came together and I was like, okay, I'm gonna learn your skill and we're gonna apply my skills towards running this and we're gonna build a business that works. And so together we built our principles and our strategy and that's how we got to where we're at today. Just a good, successful partnership. Yeah, I love that. So much of successful partnerships and just in, in general success in life around like building teams and everything else is deeply understanding what you're good at, what you're interested in and what you're not good at and then subsidizing what you're not good at with what somebody else is good at and enjoys doing. Yep. So that's a, a major part, especially in real estate when there are so many components. It's so nice to just like lean really well into what you're exceptional at and then creating these partnerships that are hopefully healthy over a long, prolonged period of time, because the longer you stay in the game, like the more wealth you'll actually accrue. So that's, that's very cool. Tell me about the, uh, tell me about the, the goal that you set and, and how you approached it and what that time frame and execution looked like. Yeah. Oh, well, this is actually, this ties into your first question perfectly. Actually, this kind of takes us full, uh, full circle. 
So when I got started, I mentioned it took me like eight years to really come in and start buying multifamily. I had done one um, condo flip where I lived in it prior to that. But I mean, like that was my real estate adventure. I got into multifamily and started doing this when I actually set a goal that mattered. And so having a target that is significant is stage one. Stage two is setting a timeline to it, which we smashed out of the water. So around, uh, around the same time I started investing, school districts, which were already crazy in Washington State, uh, got politically super weird. And my wife got injured and the school district didn't do anything about it. She got uh, absolutely like, she really messed up her back. Um, so we went from, Hey, I would love to retire my wife somewhere in the next decade. And we, you know, we want to slowly buy some real estate. So I'm like, she's not coming back to work next year. And I just left my job. So I'm like, okay, we now have a goal of, Hey, within the next maximum two years, I want to have enough real estate to retire my wife and let her do what she wants to do. In addition, if we ever start a family, we don't want to start it here. We want to start it in Texas. So I have this simple goal, buy house in Texas, retire wife. Clearly defined, obviously matters. Those are important things to, uh, to, to, any, to any husband um, or, or, you know, or potential father. But it's like, basically, I want to be able to provide for my family. And I know what that's going to cost. That's going to cost me fifteen dollars to $20,000 a month to be secure in that and build the life that we want to live. So now I have a defined goal. I know how much it costs and I have a defined timeline. I wanted to do it in two years. Cody and I knocked it out in 11 months. The goal was, hey, 100 cash flowing multifamily units should get us there. Let's strive towards that first. Unit counts a stupid goal, by the way. It doesn't matter. Cash flow matters. But when we are learning how to do this, that, that's what we actually did. Is we sat down and said, if we have decent cash flow on 100 units between two people, that should be enough money. And so uh, we got there in 11 months. Uh, and then we, of course, we more than doubled the unit count since then, started some other companies. Uh, it's been quite an adventure. But as we put this stuff together, um, that is what changed everything. Is I went from, hey, I want to be a real estate investor to, I need to hit this goal. And so I'm going to go hit this goal. And that, that, that is what I've found is the difference for most people is success or not success is you define your goal, your goal matters, and then you can go ahead and buckle in and get obsessed. Right. What well, was that all from that, that first multifamily deal that you and Cody did together? Or did you do additional deals after that within that 11 month period? My, so I set that goal right before I bought the first duplex. Um, so I bought a duplex, um, 2020, um, bought a second duplex in 2021. And that is also the year where I bought the 38 plex with Cody and then a seven plex and a six plex to round out the year. That was, that was the like 2021 was really the big year, but my first duplex 2020 I was like, Oh, this is kind of cool. And then we, we took off the next year in 2022, we bought a lot of our existing portfolio, uh, a ton of them, including the Robin Hood village resort. Uh, but we bought a bunch then. And then, um, Oh my gosh, the, we're under contract for like 70 units right now that are going to be closing out here pretty soon. Nice. Hell yeah. I always love hearing people's stories of not just how they got in, but what really lit the fire under their butts. Because like for me, it was more of a, like a fortune thing. So like my parents, they, they were in commercial real estate. And so I grew up around it, understanding it. My, my dad did land development. My dad did a million different things, but one of the things that he did um, for a brief period was land development. And uh, so I grew up being familiar with it and understanding that it was something that I was interested in. But then the way that I actually fell into it was, 
my wife and I were both from San Antonio, but we travel a lot, and so we didn't actually have a home in San Antonio. But we knew, of course, visiting family for the holidays, that it'd be nice to have a place to stay. So we decided to buy a fourplex, renovate it, rent all the units out as short-term rentals. That way we'd have some flexibility in terms of like when we were staying and didn't want to stay and things like that while subsidizing the mortgage and, and hopefully cash flowing pretty well. And once we renovated and got the property stabilized, it was doing so well that I was like, dude, this is the move. Like, it, th- this is the move. It, I just need to scale this thing. And then, of course, like that was that was a couple years ago. And then the market pulled back pretty heavily because it had reached its peak. And uh, and in Texas, Texas had been burning so hot for so long that um, that we we felt quite a bit of that pullback. I mean, obviously, a lot of places did. And that's actually what really lit the fire under my butt to say, dude, this is the perfect time to acquire. Like there's not a lot of movement in the space. Interest rates are so high that sellers are willing to compromise. Um, And so that's what like, yeah, really fueled it to dive in and just start ripping through deals and um, building relationships with people who are seasoned in the space was literally just this like, I need to buy now while the market is low. And then, of course, when it pulls back up, you refinance and everything else. Um, but yeah, man, I just I saw that wave and was like, dude. And with boutique hotels, I don't think it's going to last forever. I think Airbnbs and short-term rentals were so popular for so long. But now that regulations are beginning to tighten and people are starting to freak out. And a lot of these assets that were overpriced because of how much money was being poured into the space for short-term rentals – now that regulations are cracking down, I mean, like the the long term rentals aren't going to be able to subsidize those mortgages um, with with some of the rates that people are willing mm-hmm. to pay for it. So I think now there's a lot of money that's beginning to look at boutique hotels. It's getting a lot more attention. A lot more people are talking about it, and so that's the space that my partners and I have decided to hyper focus on for at least. I speculated it'll last maybe like three to six years before the space gets more saturated, kind of like self-storage, how it was like the hot thing for the last five years. And now it's a lot yeah. harder to find those deals because like everybody's going for those deals. Um, I'm I'm speculating that we're going to see something similar with boutique hotels. They're harder to, to operate, so um, we might not see the same amount of fire as um, with the self-storage. But yeah, so that's it. It's just that aggressive timeline of like, yo, this gold rush is not going to last forever. And not everybody sees this opportunity. So we've just got to rip and leverage the timing of the market. So much of it, too, is leveraging the resources that you had. Like you like we mentioned before about the covid subsidies. Like, yeah, if you didn't have those subsidies, you would have raised more capital. But there was that opportunity with that deal at that time. And so you you focus on the deal first and said, okay. I've got this deal locked and loaded. How can I leverage the resources in like this situation to actually figure out the financing to deliver on that? Yeah, and the boutique hotels is an interesting industry. So we have the Robinhood Village Resort, um, also picked up zero dollars out of pocket, a four and a half million dollars seller financed transaction. Uh, seller financed three and a half million of it. We had a million dollar raise. That's our first seven figure raise. Which, by the way, we raised in seven minutes, um, which is a, a fun story in and of itself. But um, you're right. They're hard to run operationally because it's hard to systematize. Any system that you add where you're not actively involved is really expensive in proportion to the number of units you have on some of the smaller hotels. Mm -hmm. That's something we learned. If you're going to play that game, you want to be someone who doubles and triples down into the boutique hotel space. And you want to be a master of that. That is something where Cody and I, uh, we, we make a lot of money on it. It is a good, uh, like fundamentally, it's an 
excellent deal. If I can go back in time, I would have not gotten into hospitality because I'm already a multifamily guy and we are yeah, yeah. excellent at what we do and we have the systems there. There's something that happens. I have talk about this a lot, but uh, when you do a new venture, you have to pay a stupid tax. There are just things that you don't know that yeah. you don't know. And so if you are trying to do multifamily and then you get into hospitality and then you start your own property management company, you do all the stuff that we did, you keep paying like really high new stupid taxes every time. And so it gets really expensive. The best thing you can do with money in general is find something that you're good at, pay your stupid tax, and then just get better and better at that thing. Money should be fairly boring. Like the things that are consistent, that are stable and are repeatable are where you want your money because you want your money to be consistent, stable, and repeatable. Like you want it to keep growing. Uh, if you are doing new adventures all the time or trying to do something like one-off projects, those are the people who lose money the fastest. And I see that happen again and again and again. So if I could go back in time, this excellent deal that I did, I wouldn't have done it. It took away from where we are the best. One day, if, if everything stays hot in, in, uh, in boutique hotels, that is one of the only assets where I'm like, I could, I could see a universe in which we sell it right? because it's busy and they're hard. And if you only do that, you can make a boatload of money. Um, but yeah, really, really cool asset class, really rewarding. It's fun to own like top tier, interesting spaces. Ours is, you know, 19 cabins on the water, uh, resort turned 90 years old today. They're big A-frames in the woods. That's it cool. is very cool. Um, however, that should be your business model. If you go into that, right. like double, triple, quadruple down on like, we're going to be the best in the world at doing this thing. And I think you can make ludicrous money in the boutique hotels if you get good at operating them. Right. Yeah. I love that. I, lo I love that idea of the, the stupid tax. Because there are a lot oh. of people too that like, they get shiny, entrepreneurs get shiny object syndrome. Right, where they're just jumping around trying the new thing and if they don't succeed within the first 30 to 90 days and they jump over to the next thing and it's like all you're paying is the tax you're not even getting to that mm -hmm. profitable region you're literally just paying the tax and then hopping over to the next thing and life's too short i mean if if that's what you want to do is you know explore different things for your whole life then like yeah more power too but that's not what most people are doing they're like trying to succeed and don't realize that they're paying the stupid tax they think that it's actually a, a failed idea, but it's like, no, you're just, you're paying the tax and you pay the tax up front before you actually get those like cash flowing net returns. Yeah. My advice to people is find the thing that you are passionate about that you could be the best in the world at. It doesn't mean that you're going to get there, but like find something you're like, I could, I could become the best in the world at this and then do that thing. Like we are ludicrously good at buying, it, granted, not everything we buy is a slummy property, but I can buy really beat up properties. We can renovate them so they are nicer than all the units around them and I can charge slightly less than market rent. No one ever moves out of a building when it costs a little less than the property next door and it's a little bit nicer. So we have like extremely little vacancy. We run everything really profitable and I can do it again and again and again. And it's simple and it's boring. And we're amazing at it. And then I own the property management company so I can control all of my expenses and all of the market rents in that market. Like that is a business where it's like, I can compete here at any level. That is what you should look for as an entrepreneur and then focus on that. There's only one model I've ever seen for shiny object syndrome people. If you're insanely good at acquiring stuff, you acquire businesses, you optimize them a little bit and you sell them at a higher price. If you want to flip all these different ideas, you have to exit. I've never seen someone who buys a lot of different 
asset classes and is good at running all of them. Mm-hmm. So if you're a buy and hold guy, sorry, uh, pick something and do it until it's boring. If you're like a, a junkie for being an entrepreneur, the way to do that <laughs> is be amazing at your systems for onboarding and offloading. And you're going to be amazing at having an active job of we're going to churn businesses and we're going to learn new things and uh, we're not going to hold everything, um, which isn't my model. But that's the only success I've ever seen. There's people who like their actual job is we buy businesses and then we add some systems and then we sell the business. It's the only model where you're going to make any money if you want to do everything. Right. And even then, oftentimes the people who succeed in those spaces, like their systems, to to your point, it's like they're actually not doing the same thing. They're applying or they're actually not doing different things. They're applying the same thing to something different. So they are like private equity companies it's like they're good at evaluating businesses and pulling the experts in who can clearly identify the issues and how to solve them and then they build teams around that so even though they're applying that technique to different spaces their skill set is really just evaluating businesses and pulling great teams together and they often have like the networks to be able to pull the right teams together so yeah like think like alex Ramosi, uh, acquisition.com like he's probably one of the most popular online people doing that it's like we buy companies, and then he has all these systems. Uh, you know what that you know what that translates though. You build a business that has now become simple, repeatable, and fairly boring. Business in, apply the systems, do the marketing, sell business at higher price. That's all you're trying to do: simple, boring, repeatable. Do them again and again and again. Um, yeah, that, that's one of the biggest things we learned. Creative finance is dangerous for this because you get the ability to buy anything with or without money. Mm, yeah. Uh, so the temptation as an entrepreneur is to buy everything. Right. If you want to have money, avoid that at all costs because <laughs> you end up, uh, you can end up really wealthy, which, which did happen for Cody and I. We made millions of dollars. We've had multiple times where it's like there is sincere liquidity crunches. We start with no money. You do a bunch of ventures. You pay a bunch of stupid tax. Then you pay a bunch of actual tax because you made money. Um, <laughs> and you end up with, I'm like, wow, we have no liquidity and a ton of equity. Then when interest rates double, you're like, cool, I'm rich and I can't touch the money. So keep everything really simple. When you start with no money, you're not gonna have money immediately in business. But like if you learn the creative finance stuff, you take a little bit of time. The next game is how do we balance having equity in the portfolio, having cash on hand and having income. And you try to keep those three things in balance. And that's when you're considered rich. And in my book, you have to have the balance of I have cash flow, equity that is growing, and I have cash on hand. If you can keep all three pillars, you're rich. So by definition, Cody and I aren't rich yet. We always have two of the three, but we trade one for the other. You play the game long enough, you get all three. Yeah, sometimes yeah. we're high cash flow. We're always high equity, but sometimes we're high high cash flow, low liquidity. Sometimes we're really high liquidity, um, and then we do a project that kills the cash flow. You have to get all three at the same time and hold all three. And if you can do that, congratulations. You have won capitalism. Yep. 100%. We're not there yet. We're close. But also so much of it is just enjoying the game that it's like, at least for me personally, it's like I can kick that can down the road because I don't actually like, I mostly just love the game of like shuffling it back and forth and figuring out that puzzle, you know, that it's falling in love with the process. I really think is fun in all of it. If you were just playing for the end, that would be pretty lame. Like, like no one plays a board game to be like, wow, can we just skip to the end of the game? Like, yeah, yeah. 
you need to have fun. And if, if anyone's unaware of this, um, statistically, uh, you're going to die. So far, we haven't seen a whole lot of exceptions to that. Uh, there was one guy a while back, but I mean, generally speaking, you're you're not going to live forever. So the things that you do, you need to enjoy with your time here. So it's like if, if if you hate multifamily properties and you're like, but they make money, and I saw this online, uh, don't do them. It's not going to be interesting for you. You're probably not going to be as successful, but you're going to waste your time. Do things that you're passionate about, um, but do them profitably, and add systems to them. And you know, it's a choose your adventure thing. I love that about I love that about every asset class. I love real estate. I think it's the best way to generate actual wealth and income. But what that looks like for you as an investor, totally up to you. Boutique hotel people should do an amazing job at that. Low income housing people should be amazing at it and not slumlords. Self storage people, you know, if, if storing people's stuff is interesting to you, like just be amazing <laughs> at the systems behind it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love that. Naval Ravikant says, do the thing that you are exceptional at and that you love, like you're saying, and then see if the world is willing to pay for that thing. Funny story, when I was when I was little, I must have been like eight years old, I loved piano. My mom got me piano lessons, I had a little piano. She could not keep me off that thing. I like she every time she heard me playing it, she asked if I finished my homework and then I'd say no and she'd send me back to fin to doing my homework and fifteen minutes later I'd be back on the piano. I literally couldn't stay off of it. And so I wanted to be a concert pianist when I grew up. So I was like, this is just what I love doing. And my mom in her wisdom knew that piano players don't make the amount of money to compensate for some of the other activities that I enjoyed doing. So she said, sweetie, do what you're good at with math and science and talking to people. And then you can buy all the pianos in the world. And that like stuck with me so deeply where I always thought to myself, Oh, don't just go for the thing that I enjoy doing. Go for the thing that, I enjoy doing and people are willing to pay for and then let that subsidize the things that I enjoy doing that people won't pay for. Long story short, I don't play piano at all anymore. But <laughs> the, lesson, <laughs> the lesson that I pulled from that experience has served me so well across the board and is one of the most profound things that my mom taught me. That's the, that's the main thing. You got to figure out like, like the money is for the things you're passionate about. People do these stupid motivational five second videos on like, do the thing you love. You'll never work again. It's like people who stop working on things they're passionate about typically die shortly after. Like you have to have purpose. Yeah, yeah. Like people are like really into like, oh my gosh, I want no responsibility. Uh, that's not healthy. Like that, it, you're not right. you're not designed to do that. That's not going to work. And right. so it's like money is money is important. I think people have a weird concept of it. It's like okay, look, it's like it's not really real. It, it needs to be used for stuff. But you, you do need the actual resource. It's just a medium of exchange. That's all it is. So it's like, okay, um, let's do something profitable and that, while I'm working. And let's do the things we love when we're not on the clock. And right. yeah, that's a great way, to, great way to look at it. I have, I think I have one of the, yeah, I have a guitar behind me over there. I have like, I have like 10 other guitars on my wall. Um, I love playing guitar. I'm not going to make a living playing guitar. That's just, it, it's hard to right. do. And I, I have zero chance of being the best in the world at it. <laughs> Um, right. There are some amazing guitar players who just hear music differently than I can. Um, so it's a hobby. And so um, you buy guitars and play guitars. Yeah. Buy guitars, play guitars, and then uh, spend my day doing a business that I also really love. Yeah. Simple, easy. But yeah, no, you're, you're right. Look at the pieces you have and seize the opportunities in front of you.